The transition from childhood to adolescence is as hard for parents as it is for the young person. Not knowing how much, if any, responsibilities to give them and questioning every decision you make, worrying whether or not it was the right one. One such decision is the choice to leave your child home for the first time, something which usually doesn't result in any major problems. For one mother, this decision would have the worst possible outcome as she left her 13-year-old daughter home alone to go to work, but by the time she came back an hour and a half later, she was gone and would never be seen again. Let's uncover the unsolved disappearance of Lee Ochi. Hello and welcome to the 34th episode of Uncover True Crime Podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we uncover a different unsolved true crime case, ranging from missing persons, unsolved murders, Jane and John Doe's and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other podcast streaming apps as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Uncover underscore pod, on Instagram at Uncover True Crime pod or you can join the Uncover True Crime discussion group on Facebook. Before we get into today's case I want to give you the first ever update I've shared about a case we have previously covered. Back in March we uncovered the murders of Amina and Sarah Saeed who were murdered in a so-called honour killing by their father, Yasser. If you want to listen to that episode, I will leave a link for it in the description. But I am very happy to report to you all that Yasser Abdul Saeed has been found and arrested after being on the run for 12 years, eight of which he was also on the FBI's most wanted list. On Wednesday the 26th of August he was arrested without incident for two counts of capital murder and for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. He is now in federal custody and is due to be transferred to Dallas, Texas in order to face prosecution for his horrendous crimes. As I mentioned in the episode where we uncovered this case, it was heavily suspected that members of his family aided in his escape and that they were helping him avoid capture. And this has now been confirmed as on the same day Yasser was arrested, his brother Yassim and his son Islam were both arrested for harbouring a fugitive. Police do not believe that they are the only ones that helped him though and are still urging the public to come forward if they have any information on who else helped him during the last 12 years. I don't know how or where he was found or if anyone has claimed the $100,000 reward money being offered by the FBI but I certainly will keep you all updated on any further developments in this case and on the court process. I am so happy that he has been found and that Amina and Sarah can finally receive justice after 12 long years. But without any further ado, let's uncover the unsolved disappearance of Lee Ochi. Lee Ochi was born on the 21st of August 1979 to Vicky Felton and Donald Ochi, who met during their time in the military. Speaking about his daughter's birth, Donald said, quote, Lee was the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen. I felt so much love that I didn't know I was capable of feeling. When I first held her, I cried like a baby. I had been responsible for the lives of many soldiers, but this tiny baby was mine to care for until one of us died. There was no comparison for this increased degree of responsibility. She smelled so sweet, her skin was so soft. To me, each of her movements was a marvel. This tiny baby was actually mine and that would never change. 
unquote. Vicky and Donald married quite quickly but the marriage didn't last long and Lee was only a toddler when the pair divorced. At this point, Vicky and Lee moved from Hawaii to Tupelo, Mississippi to be closer to Vicky's parents and although Donald travelled a lot in the army, he and his daughter were very close. He spoke about the good times he shared with Lee, saying, quote, The summer she came to Germany for a month or so, I enjoyed taking her to the castles, teaching her to speak German and taking long bike rides. I taught her a phrase and a German man behind us almost fell over laughing hysterically. She said, what did I say? And I answered, you want to buy a lovely blue blouse made out of a cat. She was both embarrassed and delighted. That was a beautiful time. We also had fun shooting. She was a good shot. She was not afraid to shoot some of my most powerful handguns. Another of our favourite things to do was go out after a heavy rain in my 4WD at a high rate of speed. The first time we hit a huge puddle and the mud was all over her, she had a shocked look on her precious face. It was unforgettable. We laughed like fools. Unquote. The more Lee grew, the more her personality shined through, and by all accounts, she was a sweet, kind little girl who loved animals, especially horses. While she was a good student and excelled in maths, pupils and teachers noted that she displayed, quote, disruptive behaviours, unquote, which would lead to the other kids avoiding her if at all possible. She did have one person her age that she could turn to, and that was her boyfriend, 11-year-old Jordan Muir. They didn't go to the same school, so they didn't see each other a lot, but they did talk on the phone most nights. On the 21st of August 1992, Vicky Felton threw a party for Lee's 13th birthday, and all of Lee's friends and Jordan came and all had a great time. Little did they know that this was the last birthday they would ever spend with Lee before she would go missing less than a week later. On the 26th of August 1992 at 8pm, Lee arrived home after hanging out with some friends to find that her mother wasn't home. Not sure what to do for the best, she went to a neighbour's house. That neighbour said that Lee was her usual self, was very chatty and didn't notice anything unusual about her behaviour. 45 minutes later, she saw her mother return home through the neighbour's window and left to return to her own house. That night, Lee opted to sleep in her mother's bed as Storm Andrew was making its way through Mississippi and she was scared. The next morning, Vicky woke up and needed to go to work, so she chose to leave Lee home alone. Lee's grandmother was due to pick Lee up later that morning to take her to an open day at her school, so she thought she would be okay unattended for a few hours. Nevertheless, she decided to call home a few times just to check in. She left their home on the one 100th block of Honey Locust Drive at 7.35am and made the first call to Lee at 8.30am, but received no answer. Likely thinking that Lee was in the shower or something, she waited a few minutes and then called back, but Lee still didn't answer the phone. Vicky got very anxious as this was the first time she'd ever left Lee home alone, so she asked her mother, Lee's grandmother, to go over to the house earlier than was planned to check on her. Her grandmother agreed, but Vicky's nerves got the better of her and soon after calling her mother, she left work to drive home through the tropical storm to make sure that Lee was okay. When she arrived at the house, she immediately noticed that the outside light was on and that the garage door was open. According to Vicky, this light was activated by the garage door opening, so she knew it had only been opened a few minutes earlier. Recalling this detail, Vicky said, quote, I don't remember if I put the garage door down. I do every morning, so I'm sure I did, 
but I just don't remember that. Didn't stick in my mind, unquote. When Vicky entered her home, she was horrified to find a blood trail leading from the hallway to the living room and to the back door. There was blood on the carpets, the walls, the bathroom counter and on a door frame. She ran around the house looking for Lee, but when she realised that Lee was no longer in the home, she called 911. Vicky searched her home for 15 minutes before calling the police and many online sleuthers have criticised her for this, but I really don't think that that's fair. She was likely looking all around her property and in the nearby area to see if Lee was nearby and to be honest, as far as missing persons cases go, she was reported missing very quickly and I don't think anyone can hold it against her that she waited a whole 15 minutes before calling the police. But that is only my opinion. When the police arrived, they noticed that there was no sign of forced entry, but there certainly had been a struggle. As I've said, blood was found in several rooms in the home, and there was also hair stuck to the door frame, indicating that Lee had hit her head there. But we don't know how serious that injury would have been, or if it was the only injury she sustained. The blood found inside the home was still wet, and was blood type O. But, as this was 1992, police were unable to test the blood. There seems to be some confusion as to what blood type Lee had, but most sources say that it was either A or B. But regardless, it is thought that this blood was Lee's. Just a thought, but I wonder if they could test the blood now by comparing it against her parents. Maybe this has already been done but not reported on, but I do think it's safe to say that the blood was hers. Another thing I don't know is exactly how much blood there was and whether it suggested that she had a serious or potentially fatal injury. It was clear to police that someone had tried to clean up the blood, but they couldn't find the towel that was used to do this. Vicky told police that when she left her house that morning, Lee was still in her night gown, but this was found in the laundry basket along with one of her bras, both of which had blood on them. The only things missing from the home was a few items of Lee's clothing, a pair of shoes, her glasses, all of which she might have been wearing when she left the home. The last item seems like quite a weird thing to take, however if the kidnapper had incapacitated Lee before taking her out of the home, which is what the evidence suggests, placing her in a sleeping bag would have been the most discreet way of removing her from the home. But again, this is just my opinion. Captain Bart Aguirre was on the scene that fateful morning and he described the blood on the scene by saying, quote, It's a pretty significant amount that would lead any parent to concern, unquote. It was pretty obvious to police at the scene that this was not a runaway case and that something bad had happened to Lee and they knew that they needed to find her fast. While finding Lee was their top priority, Clearly preserving physical evidence was not, as the scene was not taped off for a whole seven days. Meanwhile, police, concerned friends and family, as well as reporters, trailed in and out the house, potentially destroying any clues that could have aided in the search for Lee. Donald Ochi was granted emergency leave of absence from the army and did everything he could to search for his daughter. When talking to the media about his daughter's disappearance, he said, quote, it felt like someone punched me in the stomach. Initially, I thought she may have run away, so I didn't go to Mississippi right away. For days, I walked around in a daze and kept thinking about getting my 45 pistol and going to Tupelo and killing someone, but I did not know who to kill. 
I still don't. I have gone to Tupelo on four occasions, the first time for a month, the other times I went for three or four days. Each time I searched remote areas and followed leads that people gave me. Mostly, the time spent was dusk to dawn." Unquote. These searches did not turn up anything, and surprisingly, the most intriguing piece of evidence was not uncovered by a concerned citizen or police. It was actually mailed to Lee and Vicky's home. A parcel addressed to B. Yarborough was mailed from Boonesville, Mississippi, around 30 miles from Lee and Vicky's home on Honey Locust Drive. Although the sender had spelled the address incorrectly and used six stamps when only three would have been needed. B. Yarborough is the name of Lee's stepfather, who had moved out of the property a short time before Lee went missing when he and Vicky separated but we will talk about him a little bit later. The most interesting thing about the package, however, was the glasses found inside. Glasses that have been identified as belonging to Lee. I don't know exactly how they know that these glasses were definitely hers, and not just ones that looked like hers, but it's totally possible there was something unique about Lee's glasses that made them instantly recognisable, or maybe they compared the prescription on the lenses to Lee's. I don't know. On her name as profile, it says that Lee may be wearing her eyeglasses, which suggests to me that police are not convinced that they are actually hers. No DNA could be obtained from the stamps as they were too wet, and police believe that whoever sent the parcel did so in order to throw police off the trail. While I think it's possible that the person travelled to Boonesville with the sole purpose of mailing the glasses, I also think it's possible that the person who sent them had intimate knowledge of Lee's disappearance. While there are no witnesses as to what happens to Lee, one woman driving to work that stormy morning did see something out of the ordinary. She claims to have seen a man and woman walking down Honey Locust Drive, and the man put his hood up as she got closer to him and also put his arm around the woman's shoulder. She thought that something wasn't quite right because the woman looked scared and was going to offer the pair a lift. After hearing about Lee going missing from the same street that same morning, she called the police non-emergency line but no one got back to her and she wasn't officially interviewed until 2016. When the police finally took her statement, she said that the man was short, had a thick build, grey hair a scruffy beard and was wearing an army-like green jacket. At this point, I would like to mention that the only account of this sighting came from an interview the witness gave to a podcast called Open the case of Lee Ochi. And although I tried listening to this podcast on several different platforms, I had issues streaming the episodes and was never able to hear the interview for myself. I don't know if she was able to give a description of the woman or if she was even in Lee's age range, but I think we need to take this woman's account with a pinch of salt. I am by no means saying that she is lying or making it up, however it was 28 years ago and her memory of that morning wouldn't have been 100% accurate. This is absolutely not her fault however and it's ridiculous that the police waited over two decades to question her. Again, I don't know exactly what time she saw the pair and it's very possible that they weren't involved at all in whatever happened to Lee. However, they might also have witnessed something and were also too scared to come forward. We just don't know and to be honest, I don't think we'll ever know the truth about the woman and man seen on Honey Locust Drive that day. 
the next and last publicly known lead in Lee's case happened in November 1993 when police in Monroe County found a skull in a soybean field. Dr Emily Ward performed an examination on the skull and through dental records she identified the skull as belonging to Lee Ochi. Her parents were devastated but their sadness soon turned to anger when three days later the medical examiner's office retracted the identification. The only reason this mistake was corrected was because Lee's dentist contacted Dr Ward to ensure her most recent dental x-rays were used to ID the body, which it turns out they were not. But as only four teeth were intact when the skull was found, I don't know how they could have relied on dental records to identify the skull at all. Nevertheless, upon further examination, they identified the skull as belonging to 27-year-old Polly Anna Sue Keith, who went missing in March 1993, but there is no further information about her available online. Four other Jane Doe's have been ruled out as being Lee Ochi, and she remains missing to this day. Now let's talk about theories and as with all theories we discuss on this podcast, they are all pure speculation. Theory number one is that Barney Yarborough, Lee's stepfather, was involved in her disappearance. There is a rumour circulating online that Lee was physically abused and Donald Ochi claims that although Barney confessed to the abuse, there was nothing to say that he kidnapped or killed Lee. This is a very bizarre thing for police to tell Donald if they didn't consider consider Barney a suspect and I don't know exactly what Barney admitted to or if there was a miscommunication between Donald and the police. As mentioned earlier, Barney and Vicky had separated just before Lee went missing and he was no longer living in the house. But why were the glasses mailed to the home addressed to him? And what would his motive be? Barney was cleared by police at the time and he has since passed away, so if he did know something about Lee's case, he took this to the grave with him. The second theory is that Vicky, Lee's mother, killed her the night before, staged the scene and left for work as normal that morning in order to secure an alibi. This is a big accusation to make and yes, I think it's important to rule out all those closest to the victim, but you can't outright accuse people of murder with no evidence. Those closest to the investigation at the time described her behaviour as quote-unquote aloof, and Donald claims that she was not forthcoming with information when she told him that their daughter was missing, and that she didn't quote, explain the gravity of the situation, unquote. He also claims that she never cried or aided in the search for Lee. Other than her behaviour, the only evidence, and I'm using that word loosely, is the fact that she failed two polygraph tests. If you have listened to past episodes where I have discussed lie detector tests, you know that I do not put any weight in them whatsoever, but I am including it as I know that some people do, despite the fact that they are not admissible in any criminal court I'm aware of. We don't know what questions she was asked and what she failed on, so if she was being deceptive in the test, it's impossible to know exactly what she was lying about. Also, the neighbour that Lee visited the night before she disappeared didn't notice anything bizarre about her behaviour. She also didn't state that Lee seemed scared of her mother when she saw her approach the house. From what I was able to find, Lee never reported that she was being abused 
or showed any physical signs of abuse other than injuries which were said to be the result of her horse riding. However, Vicky, husband named as a person of interest in the case, and I believe she is still a person of interest to this day. Donald Ochi has publicly stated that he believes someone within the family is responsible for Lee's disappearance and possible murder, but has never been more specific about this allegation. Was he talking about Vicky, Barney, or someone else? Vicky is fully aware that people suspect her in the case and has said, quote, That has never been a bother to me. It's never been about me. It's about finding Lee. And I didn't care and still don't care what anyone says about any of it. I have never not cooperated with anyone because of what they think. I don't care about that. I want to find my daughter. I am not fazed by what they say. I have thicker skin than that. I am more reasonable than that. If that bothered me, I would not have been able to cope, but that was not the focus and that is not a problem." Unquote. Vicky has made her own accusation about who she believes kidnapped Lee, which leads us on to theory 3, Oscar Cairns, but as he is more commonly known as Mike, that is how I will be referring to him going forward. Mike was a Sunday school teacher at the church Lee and Vicky attended, and Vicky claims after Lee went missing, he would often come by the house, which she had never done before. She said, quote, Things that he did after the disappearance were strange to me, and when I looked him straight in the eye, his avoidance of eye contact was very awkward. He had never been over to my house before that, but then he stopped over to bring me a picture of her. When he first did it, I didn't think anything of it. I thought he was just concerned. But after that, when I found out some of the things he had done to another young girl, it all fit in place pretty much in my mind that he had to have been the one responsible. He has horses and Lee had commented that he had asked her when she would want to go riding. She would have jumped at the chance for that. She would never open my door to a stranger. I'm 100% sure of that." Unquote. What Vicky is referring to when she said, quote, what he did to other girls, unquote, was that nine months after Lee went missing, Mike kidnapped and raped a 15-year-old girl from her home while she was home alone. Sounds familiar? He was sentenced to 24 years, 16 of which were suspended, and unbelievably, he only served four years in prison before being released. It didn't take him long to strike again, but this time he kidnapped a married couple and raped the woman while her husband was forced to listen. He was immediately recalled back to prison and was due to be released last year, but I couldn't find any information on if he was let out or if he has offended since. He was questioned about Lee's disappearance, but unsurprisingly, refused to talk to them. I hope that if this piece of shit is responsible, police will be able to arrest him soon so he doesn't have the chance to hurt anyone else. If it isn't him, whoever did this is still out there and I hope that if more people hear about Lee's story, someone who knows something will come forward and we can finally give her long-suffering family answers. This episode is being released the day after the 28th anniversary of Lee's disappearance and a week after what should have been her 41st birthday. Her boyfriend Jordan, who is now in his late 30s, thinks about Lee regularly and while her mother believes that Lee might be out there alive, her father disagrees and he wants justice and to be able to lay his daughter to rest. Quote, I used to get drunk 
but there's no future in that. So I bought a living memorial for her and placed it near my parents' grave in a local cemetery. I visit it several times a year. The first one I made, I had Lee Ochi, August 21, 1979 to August 26, 1992, murdered, put on it. I guess the superintendent saw it one day and we had a big fight over the phone and then person to person. He felt that people would be offended by the word murdered, so I told him I was really offended by it. Eventually we compromised and I took the plaque and built a small memorial to Lee in my backyard. Unquote. While Donald has remarried and has had other children, Lee continues to be a huge part of his life. He said, quote, I wish that I told her how much she meant to me and how much I loved her. I was not a very affectionate person then and I did not care much for hugging and such, though she sure enjoyed it. I should have been more accessible for that because it wasn't about me, it was about her. It was about her and now it's too late. I will regret this till the day I die. I don't avoid that anymore with the kids I have today. Though I can get mad at them when they misbehave, I try to demonstrate how much I love them and how much I value them." I'm now going to summarise the case and give you a description of what Lee looked like. Lee Ochi disappeared from her home on the 100th block of Honey Locust Drive in Tupelo, Mississippi on the 27th of August 1979 at some point between 7.35am and 8.45am. At the time of her disappearance, she was 4 foot 10 inches tall and weighed 95 pounds. Although her mother says some of the clothes she'd recently been gifted on her birthday were missing from the house, so it's unknown what she was wearing when she either left or was taken from the house. She was a white female with blonde hair, hazel eyes, and she had a strawberry birthmark on the base of her scalp, small scratches on her left leg, and bumps on both knees. She had pierced ears, a lazy eye which she used glasses to help correct, and it's unknown whether she had her glasses with her when she disappeared. Her blood type is either type A or O. She was 13 at the time of her disappearance, and if alive today, she would be 41 years old. If you're watching this on YouTube, on your screen right now is a photo of what she may have looked like age 31. If you have any information on Lee's disappearance, please contact the Tupelo City Police Department on 662-841-6491. If you call, please ask for Detective Cassidy Jumper and quote the case number 3590. That's everything I have for you today. Thank you for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.